Man, Apocalypse kind of blows my mind. You and Cable both, Miles. What's bugging you? Well, he's one of the iconic X-Men villains, and he was basically an off-the-cuff improvisation. I mean, he started out as just a name Louise Simonson subbed in at the last minute, and now look at him. He's come pretty far. When did he really start to gel, anyway? His mythos and that super distinctive look. Well, we're first gonna see him, I mean, not counting that weird splash page reveal with the gimp mask, in X-Factor number 6. But his actual backstory wouldn't be revealed until much, much later, and he didn't actually get a real name until the first Cable series. What's with him in Cable, anyway? I know Sinister is creepily obsessed with the Summers family, but does Apocalypse have any actual connection? Beyond the epic antagonist chosen hero thing. Ah, there but for the grace of Marvel editorial. What do you mean? Well, Apocalypse actually has a lot of connections to the Summers family. On one hand, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing, so Sinister's Apocalypse is right-hand man, and he's his go-to mad scientist, and the Summers family is Sinister's go-to genetic line, plus there's all the time travel, which of course muddles things further. As it does. But during his run on Cable in the early aughts, writer Robert Weinberg actually had a very specific explanation for the Apocalypse-Summers connection, something that would not only have given context for that connection, but would have solved a mystery that had been floating around since the throwaway Sinister line seven years before. You don't mean... Oh yeah. Apocalypse. Freaking Apocalypse. Was almost the third Summers, brother. What?! Rachel Adderton. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 57th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So this time we are diving back into X-Factor. We've only covered number one so far, so we're going to keep going and cover the entire run of the writer Bob Layton. Can we have a moment of just silent gratitude first that we are done with Secret Wars 2? We are. We are. The Beyonder is not going to show up and derail any more stories. I mean, except for whatever he may or may not be doing in the current Secret Wars. Ah, <sighs> breath of fresh air. So let's talk about uh, what's happened and sort of this run in general. Now, we've really only looked at the first issue of X-Factor so far, and that means that we are still in the middle of the initial Bob Layton run. And I gotta say, man, it is kind of terrible. Issue number one is actually pretty good. You know, the one that sets up the premise and the team. But it really suffers after that. But I like liking things, so what I'm going to do in this episode is I'm going to try to find things to like about the Bob Layton Jackson Guise run of X-Factor. I commend your dedication. So the first thing that I can find to like is that it feels in some ways like a return to the uh, the Silver Age X-Men, you know, the sort of boarding school, hijinks, uh, intra-character interaction, mission of the week sort of stuff. Ham-handed, contrived, generally pretty awful, premise much better than the execution. Again, you're not wrong, but, you know, don't rain on my desperate parade here. But seriously, because this is going to become one of our favorite series, and because it's starting out on such a rough note, I do actually want to kind of spend a, a couple minutes looking at why it doesn't quite gel yet, why it doesn't work for us initially. One of the things that I was thinking as I was reading through this, uh, examining that exact question before we got together to discuss it today, is that at the time, you know, each X book really had its own sort of purpose, its own feel, its own MO. I mean, you have New Mutants, which is like sort of a dark, dramatic YA comic. Right, and you've got X-Men, which is all about the mutant metaphor, exploring things on a more global scale, and, you know, the more traditional superhero stuff. But what about X-Factor? I mean, you know, we've got a decent premise, you know, mutant hunters who are actually mutant liberators in disguise. That That's kind of cool. But 
a premise is not the same as a purpose. I think a lot of the problem with the beginning of Leighton's run is that it's banking really hard on nostalgia. The book has this exact same problem, actually, that its characters do, which is that they're trying to recapture a dynamic that's long since been outgrown and inherited by the next generation. Okay, Rachel, so you've read, I mean, I've read all of X-Factor myself, but you've read it, like, a lot. What is the feel of X-Factor? What is the purpose once it really does find its voice later on? Well, I think what Simonson gives it, that it's sort of working towards obliquely is integration and growing up. And by integration, I mean I mean social as well as personal, because X-Factor works and lives within larger society in ways that neither of the other teams really do. I mean, New Mutants is basically a boarding school drama, and it's about teenagers, so it's, it's kind of self-contained in that regard. And a lot of their adventures are in other dimensions or with magical stuff or mystical stuff. Very, very few are grounded in the real world. X-Men at the same time is doing the big superhero thing. X-Factor is not. They work with the NYPD. They're really involved and actively engage in their community and in the human society around them. At the same time, we've got the five original X-Men. These are literally, you know, the kids Charles Xavier raised. <laughs> Those poor bastards. Right, exactly. And at this point, they're all adults. They're trying to work out who they are as people and as heroes and kind of forge their own identities and work out a new dynamic. In a lot of ways, X-Factor Done Right is Chris Claremont's vision for the X-Men. It's taking characters and letting them grow up. Yeah, I think you're completely right, and I think that's a little bit of why this initial run doesn't quite feel right, because while there is some sort of meta-commentary, Scott's saying, hey, it just feels like old times, but it's not like old times, it's really just sort of addressed briefly and then discarded. Otherwise, it just is old times. There were a number of scenes that felt like they could have come straight out of a Stanley Jack Kirby book. Right, it's weird, it's jarring. And when you just have the window dressing of that, like, what you end up with is basically saved by the bell, the college years. Oh, that's harsh, dude. It's deserved, I think. I mean, it's taking a group of characters changing their scenario in a way that requires growth and then refusing to let them grow. What about when X-Factor does work? What's, what's our pop culture parallel there? The best thing I can come up with is maybe one of the really good Star Trek movies. Um, I was thinking maybe either The Wrath of Khan or The Undiscovered Country because those are both about, again, those original characters trying to find a place for themselves as they grow and age and as the universe around them shifts and changes. Okay, and now I'm just doing the Star Trek X-Men uh, character-to-character parallel, and down that path lies only the rest of the episode derailed. Yeah, but I think it you make a good point. It, there's not really a crew with which it works, especially with the original five. Yeah, true, true, true. I've, I've thought about this a lot. I, I, I believe I that mean, you I've have. thought about this a whole lot. <laughs> like, this is basically what I spent high school thinking about. Oh, man, I thought you thought about me at least a little. Yeah, in context of this metaphor. Oh, well, I guess I'll take what I can get. So Bob Layton and Jackson Guise, why did they leave the book? I was really curious about this, and I haven't been able to find any solid information. Right, there are a couple different stories here. Layton's was politics, basically that Chris Claremont hated him and hated his work, which honestly, I kind of understand. Louise Simonson herself said that it was due to creative conflicts and uh, deadline problems. Honestly, I would guess that the truth of it lies somewhere between the two. This is a book that from the start had intense editorial interference. You hear a lot of stories about a lot of mandated redraws, which themselves contribute to deadline problems, and it seems like kind of a perfect storm. The odds were just really stacked. Yeah, and you know, it's unfortunate because Leighton is very good at coming up with neat ideas, and Guise is a very good artist. We actually are going to see more of Jackson Guise over in uh, New Mutants, I believe, around this era. And it's worth pointing out that I don't think Leighton had originally pitched this intending to write it. No, he just thought it was a cool idea, and he told Jim Shooter. Yeah, and that gap between ideas and execution is something that really, really plagues this era. So going into the actual comics, let's look at what's happening story-wise, where we're picking up. So this book is about the original five X-Men, Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Angel, Beast, and Iceman. It takes place right after Jean Grey comes back from the dead. It turned out the whole Phoenix thing, yeah, that was, that was a cosmic force. Jean was really fine. And at this point, 
Scott Summers and Madeline Pryor's marriage was on the rock. Scott had retired from the X-Men and he got a call from Angel saying, basically, you have to come back right now. Madeline said, if you leave, don't come back. He left. So they all got together and met up with Angel's old college buddy, Cameron Hodge, who came up with the idea that they could pose as mutant hunters, but in reality be mutant liberators. The hunters would get the tips as to where mutants were having a bad time, and the liberators would then go rescue them. In X-Factor number one, they rescued the first of such mutants, Rusty Collins. Rusty is a pyrokinetic, and he's still got only very tentative control of his powers. They manifested violently and suddenly horribly burned a woman he was with at a time. He's currently living with X-Factor, trying to work some shit out. Right. In the backdrop of all of this, Cyclops still hasn't told Jean Grey that he's married, and he still hasn't told his wife Madeline Pryor that his old flame Jean Grey is back from the dead. Okay, you know what? I want to address this, because Cyclops gets so much shit for this. He does, And on one hand, he's totally fucking up, and I will acknowledge that. On the other hand, he's trying. In X-Factor number one, he tries to tell Jean about Madeline, and a crisis comes up, and that's going to happen like four more times over the next three issues. Yeah, it is. You're right. And it's not only that. It's whenever Angel tries to tell Jean what's up, the same thing happens. It's like two characters uh, trying to kiss in some kind of uh, harem anime, and something interrupts them every single time. It gets yeah, kind of comical. Yeah, it's like everything but a piano falling out of the sky, and I'm going to come back to that. The other thing that gets me is, no, he has not called Madeline. But she hasn't gotten in touch with him either, and she was the one who said, you know, if you leave, don't come back, and she knows where he is. She knows that he was flying to New York to meet Warren, and he's been staying with Warren all this time, not counting the weird two-week fugue state disappearance. Like, I will absolutely acknowledge that Scott Summers is a total douche about his split with Madeline Pryor. However, I will argue that there is definitely some mutual douchedom going on. 1986, the douchier. And again, latent scripting is not really helping on either side. Yeah. Well, anyway, let's let's dive into uh, the issues that we're going to be covering. So um, we're going to start out with X-Factor number two and three, which is sort of a, a two-part story. Yeah, we're going to be looking at three distinct arcs today. The first one is X-Factor two and three. The second is the first X-Factor annual, which is amazing. And the third is X-Factor four and five, and that's going to wrap up Leighton's run. So X-Factor number two opens with a flashback to the Phoenix retcon, and I sure hope you like this scene, because we have seen it literally four times in two months, and you're going to keep seeing it over and over and over and over and over. We also have a recap of X-Factor number one, which seems a little premature. It's like previously it's, on X-Factor. It's super detailed and it's all in these really long thought balloons. And I gotta say, man, thought balloons are such a thing in the first five issues of X-Factor. I have not actually done this, but I would guess that if you sat down and count words... More of them appear in thought balloons than appear in speech balloons during these six issues. So as this is going on, Angel, who's dressed in uh, tidy whities and a bathrobe, is giving Cyclops romantic advice about his current predicament. I want you to think for a minute about what happens from the start of X-Factor number one through the end of X-Factor two or three. Mm -hmm. So you leave your house after a fight with your wife. You arrive in New York and your dead girlfriend is alive and suddenly all of your oldest friends are there, but everything is subtly different. And someone hands you uniforms and tells you that you are now part of a super weird scheme in which you will pretend to be both mutant hunters and renegade mutants and no one else seems to think it's weird. And then Angel keeps popping up in really inappropriate circumstances and or his underwear to give you dubious romantic advice. And when you finally try to call home, the line has been disconnected and you keep on trying to talk to Jean about what's going on. But every time you do, there's an alarm or something like Cyclops life at this point is literally an anxiety dream. When you phrase it like that, you're totally right. Like, this is the sort of thing where he wakes up in a cold sweat, and he's like, God, I'm glad that's not real, but no, it totally is. It's the beginning of the series he's gonna be in for years and years. 
anyway, um, existential crises aside, so as this is going on, how Hank and Bobby are off apartment hunting because they don't want to live in X-Factor headquarters. And I got to say, man, one of the things that I've always loved in X-Factor that it picks up from the Silver Age very well is Iceman and Beast's friendship. I love them together. There is stuff about this scene I don't love because they're apartment hunting in New York and they decide that they're going to drop in on an old flame of Hank's. This is, is Vera, whom he dated briefly during the Silver Age. And so they go and meet up with her and she looks, you know, different. I, I don't actually know what she looks like. Her look is pretty weird. Yeah, I, I keep on trying to figure out what stereotype she's supposed to be because there's obviously something she's supposed to be a reference to. And I just cannot place it. Like she's wearing sort of sexy genie pajamas and she's got half her head shaved and she keeps on talking about Central American leftist music. Yeah, it's really strange. Like, okay, so what this seems to me, it seems like she's being made fun of by by the writing. It actually reminds me of that writer from Secret Wars 2, number one, where Jim Shooter was basically just making fun of the creator of, of Howard the Duck. And he sort of turned him into this weird straw man figure. It kind of seems like uh, Leighton's doing that with Vera. Yeah, but at the same time, A, that was mocking a specific person. B, it was pretty identifiable what stereotype it was going after. And C, it was a new character. See, this bugs me because I really like Vera. Of all of the characters in X-Factor, I'm going to say including the unfortunately super doomed Candy Southern, I would say that Vera actually kind of fares worse. Like, the things that this book does to her are so not okay, and this is just the very tip of the iceberg. See, what they should have done in Secret Invasion years later was they should have said that in early X-Factor, Vera was actually a Skrull, and they can bring her back and she can be awesome again. So anyway, they're all hanging out, and it's really confusing and awkward. Um, but it gets even more confusing and awkward when a dude with uh, some sweet long blonde hair and a pink and purple uh, skin-tight outfit shrinks down to get under the door and then turns huge and attacks. Now, this gentleman is Tower, and he is the inexplicably recurring villain of the first arc of X-Factor. He is a size-changing mutant. His name is Edward Pasternak, and there is literally nothing else interesting about him. So, yeah, Tower beats the hell out of everybody and makes off with Beast. He, he kidnaps him away. He delivers him to a bald and bearded getaway driver, of whom we will learn more shortly. Meanwhile, back at X-Factor HQ, Jean is attempting to train Rusty to use his powers and failing. Yeah, she's being kind of really harsh at him. I mean, it's, it's kind of unwarranted. And see, this is part of the problem with X-Factor, I think, and something that comes up a lot, is that this is a group of people who have learned their people skills and their educational techniques from Silver Age Charles Xavier, who is the worst. Yeah, I mean, I'll stand up for, like, New Mutants era Charles Xavier big time, but I will agree, in the Silver Age, he was a dick. Well, I think part of it may just be that they were all, like, medium to young teenagers when Xavier trained them. Rusty's an adult. He's a young adult, yes, but I think that's an important distinction. You can't really treat an adult the same way you would treat a teenage student. Right. Now, while Jean is trying to train Rusty, Scott is trying to call Madeline, and the phone line's been disconnected. She has moved out without leaving any kind of forwarding information. Yeah, and we'll find a little bit more, well, okay, a lot more about what's uh, up with her at this time over in Uncanny X-Men pretty soon, but for now, Scott's got no idea. More importantly, Hank is gone, and X-Factor needs to investigate his disappearance. They show up at Vera's apartment. There's this thing that happens periodically because of how X-Factor works, where a member of it will be out in their civilian identity and get stuck in some event, and then ha have to pretend to be a traumatized civilian, and I love it. It's very leverage. <laughs> yeah. Yup. 
We find out immediately what happened, though. We go to Ryan Biochemical Laboratories in Atlanta, Georgia. Where Hank is currently in the power of an unscrupulous, scientifically inclined gentleman named Carl Maddox. So let's talk about this guy. Okay, so uh, if you read comics back in the 70s, like before Giant Size X-Men number one, you would recognize this guy as a dude that Beast used to work with in between his tenure on the X-Men and the Avengers. So this was at the Brand Corporation. While he was at the Brand Corporation, Beast was working to isolate the chemical cause of mutation and Maddox was a rival scientist who was trying to steal research for a group of villains called the Secret Empire, which is a great name for a villain group. So Hank used the chemical to further mutate himself as a disguise to foil Maddox's evil plan, like why he could not just use a mask or the superhero identity he'd been using for years is beyond me. But he did this and he had to take some kind of antidote. Within a certain set time period, he wasn't able to, and so he stuck that way. Yeah. Now, at the time, he was actually gray and furry. Like, it was still the same Wolverine-esque hair that we, we see with Beast in this era. So, you know, he went around. Maddox was supposedly killed by another spy that was working for the Secret Empire and never really heard from again. Until now. Maddox, at this point, decides that what he's going to do, he's got a loose end, and that's Tower. And he decides that what he's going to do is call X-Factor and get them to pick up Tower, which means Tower won't be a problem anymore, he won't be able to talk. And X-Factor is like, well, that's convenient. Right, now to clarify, this is X-Factor Investigations, their cover mutant hunting group. This group, the the original five, are running around in two different sets of identities. One of them is X-Factor Investigations, and that is Scott, Gene, and Bobby. They've also got a set of identities as a renegade mutant group, the Exterminators, and they use these identities in situations where they need to use their powers. They're sort of nominal rivals of X-Factor, and that's, that's the whole team. How no one has failed to make the connection, because they always pop up in the same place, is beyond me, but no one has. So It's, it's like a Superman-Clark Kent glasses thing. It's, it's similar logic. And X-Factor has been running these ads, you know, are you the mutant menace is rising? Are you, do you know who your neighbors are? Call us. We'll contain them. We'll put them in a box for you. Yes. They're very uh, Ghostbusters. Yeah, while this is going on, while X-Factor Investigations is going after Tower... Maddox is doing these weird experiments on Beast, you know, chemotherapy, radiation, bad stuff. He is also going through Beast's old research and forcing Beast to review the research that he's currently engaged in. He's doing this with the aid of a young man named Artie. Yeah, Artie is his son, and he is a pink kid. His skin is pink, and his head is big and bald and bumpy, and his eyes are weird. He looks very much like a pink version of the Morlock leech, and in fact, the two of them end up BFFs and are sort of the perpetual wide-eyed moppets of the Marvel Universe. They're going to be seven for the rest of time. Yeah, and so uh, Artie's mutant powers, because he is indeed a mutant, uh, are that he can reach into people's minds telepathically and project whatever's going on in there as images that are viewable by other people near him. Well, and he can do this at remarkable range and pick up on remarkably subtle and small things. The ways his powers get used narratively bug me so much. Like, I feel like Artie's powers are kind of the manifestation of someone taking the phrase show don't tell super literally while entirely (laughs) missing the intent behind it yeah maddox has already used his powers as beast is like reading over this research on basically what he was doing back in the brand corporation back in the day and he's like all right well that's what i needed for my research what i'm going to do is use this which is an experiment to like regress mutants to make them human again and i want to use that on my son But what I'm going to do first is test it on my nice captive here, the Beast, now that I've gotten everything I need out of his head. That seems really dumb to me. Beast has artificially induced mutations. Like, he's not starting from a baseline. He's a terrible test case because he's not functionally comparable to Artie. I guess that's true. I mean, on the one hand, the chemical that Beast was working on back in the day and is again now, albeit without realizing he's working on it, 
It's technically pure mutation, so maybe in theory it's bringing out like his latent mutant potential? That's something that would be supported by later but plot it's points. Still, but again, even if it's a latent secondary mutation that's triggered, in fact, even if it hadn't been artificially triggered, assuming that the same process that works on Beast is going to work on Artie, or that they're even going to have remotely similar results, strikes me as exceptionally poor science. Well, uh, Maddox does have some poor judgment uh, in many respects. Maddox has super poor judgment, and part of his poor judgment involves sending X-Factor after the villain and assuming that somehow this will tie up the loose end rather than just resulting in X-Factor finding out exactly what he's up to. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't know about the Exterminators, but still, so yeah. X-Factor, disguised as the Exterminators, take down Tower and offer to make a deal for Beast's whereabouts, but as they do, it becomes evident that this may suddenly be irrelevant because Beast has flatlined on the table. So, cliffhanger, cliffhanger. Nah, Um, he's fine. Yeah, it turns out he's fine. It's very much like an early Claremont cliffhanger. It's like, oh my god, someone's dead! Nah, they're okay. So X-Factor does get the information out of Tower after he realizes Maddox is terrible because Maddox is trying to, like, you know, remotely wipe his brain using Artie. No, it's so much worse. Maddox is telling Artie that he has to lock down Tower's brain, and if Artie doesn't mind lock him, the bad people who captured Tower are going to come hurt his kitty. He's got this cute little kitten named Muffin. Here's a question. What happens to Muffin anyway? Because I don't think we ever actually see Muffin again. I mean, I don't know. I haven't read later X-Factor in a while, but I feel like Muffin's got to stick around. I really hope I'm wrong about this. It might be like Beast's dog at the end of Defenders that just sort of disappears. Okay, this is our homework to ourselves. Let's read ahead as much as we can to figure out what happens to Muffin. So, X-Factor does head toward the lab. In the meantime, Artie is reading various people's minds, reads Beast's mind, and realizes, hey, this is actually a good dude. I don't know if I like what my father is doing. He's clearly really hurting this guy. Also, he's threatening my kitten, and he's the worst. So the exterminators break into Ryan Labs, and we have some scenes of, you know, them using their powers in various ways. We have uh, Warren trying and failing to talk to Scott about Madeline, another one of those aborted conversations that gets interrupted. Right, and he's all, this might be lousy time, and it's like, dude, you really think so? You're in the middle of a fucking covert mission. Yes, Warren, it is lousy timing. It is really, really lousy timing. It, it reminds me a lot of Metal Gear Solid 2, when Jack is going through these various missions, and his, his girlfriend, who's his operator back home, starts talking to him about his her worries about his psychological problems. That's basically everything Metal Gear Solid 2. Metal Gear Solid 2 is all about inappropriate conversations at inappropriate times. I suppose that's true. Well, the we, video game. We have some here as well. And so Also clones. So they're breaking in. Super babies. They're breaking in, and ultimately they do get to Carl Maddox and Artie, and the now bandaged head-to-toe beast, and they're like, okay, give us our friend back, buddy, and also tell us what the hell's going on, and so he does. All of this was to fix Artie's mutation so that Artie can, you know, live in society and happily ever after. And also talk, because Artie is unable to talk since his mutation triggered. Right, although he's, you know, effectively communicative, and I would assume that he could learn ASL or something like that. Uh, you know that thing I mentioned about Carl Maddox not having good judgment or thinking ahead? Yep. Yeah, that. Yeah, it's gonna come back and bite him on the ass now, because now that the exterminators have broken in, they have triggered the security systems, and there is no off switch. And again, we learned from Maddox that he has been conducting these experiences clandestinely in a part of the building that he is not supposed to be in. In fact, one that is high enough security that the guards are going to shoot on sight when they get there, which they inevitably will, again, now that X-Factor has set off all the alarms, because X-Factor's main MO is busting through walls like the Kool-Aid man. <laughs> Now I'm just imagining the Kool-Aid man in one of those old X-Factor uniforms, and it's beautiful. Anyway, so yeah, Maddox at this point, realizing what's up, says, you know what, the important thing here is the safety of my son, and they're going to see him as, you know, a mutant who everyone hates right now, and they're going to kill him. All right, guys, I'm going to hold off these guards, you take Artie, and you keep him safe. And they're like, but you're going to die, dude. He's like, hey, this is what's important to me, go. And so they do. 
Damn. And okay, so that thing I said about finding things to like, I really like this scene. The images are silent, as is the scream of the slain man's son. And you know, for me, that works. Like, it's very, it's a little over the top, it's a little purple, but but shit, Claremont does that all the time, and I think it works here. I think that you just have really positive and really specific associations for any scene that looks remotely like Yalabru. I suppose that is the case. That scene from Thor is my favorite scene of anything ever. So, yeah, they escape. Carl Maddox does, in fact, die. And now X-Factor has a second young mutant with them. X-Factor manages to rescue Beast, but again, he's wrapped head-to-toe in bandages. This is something that happens a lot in Leighton's run, where there will be something that's concealed in ways that seem to be designed to indicate how mysterious and foreboding it is, but are actually just kind of obnoxious. It's like standing with standing and watching something genuinely cool and having someone telling you about how cool it is actually makes it quantifiably less cool. <laughs> well, I think what it is is that they want to have a big dramatic reveal, uh, which I believe interrupts yet another conversation where Scott tries to tell Gene what's up. It does! Um, yeah, and so, you know, the hospital PA is like, hey, come quick, your buddy's gonna be fine. But Maddox's treatments have not only returned him to human form, but given him a hella sweet flat top. Yeah, so Beast now looks a lot like he used to uh, back in the Silver Age, again, coming back to that Silver Age status quo. Just in time for X-Factor Annual number one. Now, this annual was actually published a little bit later, but story-wise it seems to fit here pretty well, especially given that it's written by Leighton and drawn by Guise. It's also a good sort of break in the middle of the two different arcs that Leighton and Guise do. Yeah. So X-Factor is getting back from, you know, some undefined mission or another. It's clear that they've been operating for a little while now and have been very busy. They are greeted by Cameron Hodge, their sort of manager dude. Wait, 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 wait. Go back. Because before we do this, I think we need to address this amazing, amazing cover. Yeah, we do. How does one even describe that? Very Cold War. It is. There's in, that was in a sense, pun. Yes, because there's a giant hammer and sickle made of ice. Because there's Russia. And Iceman's a big deal. Get it? Get it? Historically, by the way, this is, of course, 86, so it's not Russia, it's the USSR at the time. It is indeed. So we open with a Thought Balloon Powers Exposition montage, and oh my god, I swear this this issue is like 90% Thought Balloons. People have a lot to say to themselves. They really do, and in this case, what they have to say are sort of pithy summaries of either their powers or their defining personality traits at the moment. Yeah, like Iceman's taking a, a bath in a bathtub full of ice cubes. Eugene Gray's in the shower, and she forgot her towel, so she telekinetically brings it over. And thinks about it. I, I don't remember what Cyclops is doing, but he's got a moment of, I have to wear these sunglasses or, or my optic glass will level everything. It's so Silver Age. Exactly. That's what we keep coming back to. I like the idea of maybe every issue opening like this, and they have to keep on coming up with different scenarios where Scott's justified in angsting about what'll happen if he takes his sunglasses off. Warren, you know, makes mention about, I haven't, you know, I haven't bought a corporation this week. Maybe I should look into that. God, Bob Layton's angel is such a jerk. He's sort of a like, dick. Like, he just has no redeeming qualities. I mean, I guess he's pretty, but mm-hmm. that's not really Layton. That's, that's Guise. Angel is so awful at the start of X-Factor. He's just terrible. So anyway, the uh, characters, after uh, performing their sort of, not like their danger room open, or like their bathroom open in this case, uh, had to meet the Russians, who are a couple of people from Russia who have... Uh, who well, from the them, USSR. Yes, from the USSR, who want a meeting with X-Factor investigations, you know, for their own... Not that they have a mutant problem, but if they did, maybe they would want to know how to deal with it. So they want X-Factor to come to the USSR to basically give a speech at this big seminar. The team members are like, wait, they want us to, you know, make the USSR more dangerous and crappy for mutants. That sounds awful. We don't want to do that. We're totally going to refuse. 
But Hodge arranges a meeting between them and a senator buddy of his who's like, all right, listen, I have this inside information. There is actually a bunch of horrible experimentation going on in mutants in the USSR, and we need to stop that stuff because that's terrible, and I'm a decent person to tell you about it. You guys need to accept the invitation so you can get in, infiltrate the USSR, and get those mutants safely out. Right, so Senator Thompson tells them about this, and we actually, meanwhile, get a first-hand window into it um, as a gentleman escapes from from one of these facilities, thinking long thoughts that a footnote helpfully informs us are translated from Mongolian. Yes, and he is killed by the prison's guard, who is a villain Iron Man fans will be familiar with, the Crimson Dynamo. Right, and the Crimson Dynamo is a robot who was built during the 1970s for the sole purpose of infiltrating the United States and assassinating Jimmy Carter, and later on in the 90s, we're going to see that retconned when it's taken over by, I believe, the... U.S. Soviet Alliance for what's it, the destruction of the U.S. Postal Service, and um, they're planning to kill the Postmaster General until they're thwarted by. Oh, okay, um, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's the Red Scare from the Tick live action series, dude. It's basically the same guy. They, they do look pretty similar. It's true, but anyway, X Factor does head over there. They're like, well, you know, we can't let this stand. We've got to do it. And while they get there as guests of the Russians, they're attacked by a couple of mutant resistance fighters. Specifically, uh, one I don't know what both of these guys' names are, but one of them is a large gentleman who goes by the codename Iron Curtain, which is kind of a great codename. It is, and uh, I think Hank refers to him as overly proportioned. What does that even mean? That does not mean anything. Yeah, well. But anyway, so uh, they start enacting their plan, which is that Angel's going to fly around the USSR until he can find this secret prison place. Well, first he's going to fly to the USSR over the Ural Mountains, where wearing a really silly costume yes. with some really silly eyewear. And he's going to let the rest of X-Factor know uh, where it is once he finds it. They are still palling around the embassy at this point, or the hotel where they're being put up, and they are introduced to a gentleman they have been told to look out for. That is Dr. Wolfgang Heinrich, or Heinrich, and Heinrich is the son of a Nazi geneticist. He is evil. He is the guy who's been perpetrating these, these experiments that the senator told them about, and he's also just super smarmy and awful. They're doing the meet and greets and getting increasingly creeped out. There's a panel where there's a kind of amazing moment where Scott really genuinely appears to be thumb wrestling with a woman in the background. <laughs> so there is. I love just how generally odd this mm-hmm. issue is. He quickly realizes, and we see in, yes, some more thought bubbles, that they're all mutants. They're really mutants in disguise. He so, being Heinrich. Uh, yes. So he's like, all right, I'm going to capture one of them. So he's like, hey, Iceman, um, there is an attractive but somewhat introverted secretary, that's a direct quote, who really wants to meet you. And Iceman's like, all right, l- let's do that thing. That sounds rad. At which point he pulls Iceman into a room, and Iceman is then jumped by KGB agents. I love how specific his ruse is. Like, you kind of get the impression that he's put some thought into this, and that he's kept it deliberately vague. So, like, for example, he doesn't mention the gender of the secretary. He doesn't give any details. Maybe he's, you know, sort of waiting for Bobby to respond or ask him more questions. So you're saying he's performing a cold read on Iceman? Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, And in fact, he then reveals himself as a villain called the Doppelganger and uh, turns into Iceman. He now looks like Iceman and can use his powers. And so, yes, now X-Factor Investigations has infiltrated the USSR and Heinrich, the Doppelganger, has has infiltrated X-Factor Investigations. My God, it's a double infiltration. That really sounds porny. Oh, God. It really does. Speaking of infiltrations, accidental infiltrations, in this case, Bobby has been kidnapped by the Resistance. Yeah, and those two mutants we saw before, the one who died and the one who survived, are part of it. And so the resistance is led by this dude named Alexei Garnoff, who's a telepathic priest. The rest of his team, they, I love their code names. We have Mentak, the Living Computer, Concussion, Iron Curtain, and Siberian Tiger. Yes. 
Yes. Yes. They're kind of like the USSR's Alpha Flight, I guess. I love them so much already, and they have they have amazing accents. They do. Oh my god, if you thought Claremont phonetic accents were intense, wait till you experience latent phonetic accents, because oh dang are they something. And in fact, we'll see that in what happens next, which is X-Factor Investigations infiltrating this secret detention facility slash lab after Angel finds it, and the Rebels infiltrating as well once Bobby reveals himself to them. Right, because they don't trust him. As far as they know, he's just a mutant hunter, so he has to prove that he's actually a mutant, and he does this by taking ice form, and I'm bringing this up because as far as I know, this is the only time that his clothes come with him. So he's wearing a suit, and the suit just also turns into ice instead of him just turning into, you know, normal naked ice man. Well, any mutant hunting human could turn into ice. Only a true mutant could also turn their clothes into ice. That doesn't even make sense. Things are different in the USSR. So anyway, they break into... Heinrich's evil facility where he is uh, experimenting on lots of people in a variety of attractive swimwear, and they are immediately attacked by the Crimson Dynamo, who may or may not also be the Red Scare, because I'm not letting that go. (laughs) Um, And pretty soon after this, Heinrich reveals that the Iceman that was with X-Factor is actually him. And at that point, he starts getting drawn more like him, so he's like Iceman with a little little chin beard and some really villainous eyebrows. Yeah, he's still in ice form, but he starts to get his own facial features back. His powers, he is a genetically engineered mutant, and he's basically kind of shitty mimic. Yeah, I mean, he he can take on the powers of one mutant, but he can also look like him. So he's like a cross between Morph and Mimic, I guess. Yes. Oh god, this this is where the phonetic accents are. Oh man, we'll go back and forth on it. You just follow us, Amerikanski. I'll get us in, right, Cyber? Read on, Connie. Time to reek in the roll with the bad guys. That's rock and roll, Cyber. Oh, this English language is a real pain. Great music, though. Russians, am I right? I'm just going to say, my inability to do foreign accents is normally a hindrance. In this case, I think it's a help. You really played that down to... This is the line you were reading. is spelled reet on, Connie. Time to rick in row wheat da bod guys. B-O-D. There is not a way to read this that does it justice. It does not correspond to any accent you will ever encounter in the real world. It's true. It's amazing. So, yes, all everyone comes together, all the combatants come together, and the rebels start to rescue the living people, because a lot of the ones who are being experimented on are not, and we have an Iceman versus Iceman fight, Doppelganger versus Iceman himself. On dueling ice slides, very shiny. That thing where I'm going to talk about things I like, I like that thing. I find it really interesting that Doppelganger is using Bobby's powers in really innovative ways, and that's something that we're going to see consistently for years, that people take over Bobby's powers or at one point possess him and use them significantly more innovatively than he does. Now, that doesn't stop Doppelganger from dying because he makes too much ice and falls through the floor, presumably to his death. Whoops. Yeah. So, or uh, does he? The good guys are victorious, and they head off, and uh, the priest is like, hey guys, so you need to find a way to get out of here safely. I have an idea. And he takes over their minds and makes them basically turn him and one of the other rebels in to the Russian government so that X-Factor looks good by comparison, even though this suspicious stuff has been going on. Aww. So X-Factor is, is allowed to leave safely, and on their way back home, um, Angel buzzes the plane just sort of to be fun. This is the flight X-Factor's on, too, which makes yeah. this extra bizarre, and then another passenger calls over the flight attendant to ask what's up, and she says, oh, you know, it's a mutant outside the plane, which is when we see who that passenger is. It's Heinrich! He's still alive! How did X-Factor fail to notice that he was getting onto the same flight? Ah, uh, you know, they were, they were reading the uh, safety guide. They're scared of flying. They jump out of planes all the time. Like, literally, there are like three Silver Age issues where they just jump out of planes. <laughs> well, anyway, so yeah, it's one of those, the end, or is it, kind of things. It's very, very reminiscent of the, the end of Space Mutiny for me. 
that's true. Um, so yeah, this annual, it is very silly, but honestly, if you want to get a good feel for Layton's X-Factor, you could do worse than to read this ridiculous one-shot issue. Speaking of Layton's X-Factor, let's dive back into the main series with X-Factor number four. And Miles, this was your first X-Book, wasn't it? Yeah, like I've mentioned before, one of my earliest memories is my father reading this comic to me as a bedtime story. Aww. Back when I was, I guess I must have been like four years old or something like that. So how much do you remember of it has lingered from, from what four-year-old Miles thought was cool? Actually, I feel like kind of th- what 33-year-old miles and four-year-old miles think is cool has actually remained pretty consistent <laughs> that's probably true you were ahead I, of your time man i don't remember a lot i mean i remember tower and i remember frenzy and i remember you know Iceman because i saw him on spider-man and his amazing friends on tv at the time but yeah i think i remembered it as being better than it was that being said one thing that makes me really happy is that our old friends uh and longtime listener tom actually got us a page as a gift for our 50th episode of this an original page of art from x-factor number four which and- we still need to get framed because we are actually literally the worst, but it is really, really amazing. It's 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 a really remarkable sort of piece of, of both comics and I guess for you two, personal history. Yeah, absolutely. So once again, at the beginning of this arc, we see Tower. Again, he just keeps coming back. I don't know why. There is a formula for Bob Layton X-Factor stories. It is this. There is a scene with Angel in his underwear. A wall gets knocked down. They fail to discuss Madeline Pryor. There's an unsuccessful training sequence and they fight Tower. That's pretty much it. That's actually describing a lot of this. Yeah, you combine these factors, throw in a lot of thought balloons, and you have the beginning of X-Factor right there. The power is within you. (laughs) Yep. Anyway, they're fighting Tower. He gets out of there and um, manages to meet up with a woman we haven't seen before whose name is Frenzy, and she's another member of the team Tower's now on. Ooh, can I talk about Frenzy? I love Frenzy so much. Frenzy is a woman named Joanna Cargill, and she is one of my very, very favorite underused X-Men characters. This is her first appearance. She is a mute. She is big. She is super strong. She is nearly invulnerable. She is a total bruiser. She's a kind of character we really don't get to see women be a lot, especially female villains, and she's a really super physically powerful character who looks physically powerful. She is awesome. She's going to show up sporadically across the years, usually as an antagonist, but she actually becomes protagonist and part of the main cast in Mike Carey's X-Men legacy run and then um, into Age of X and then just kind of falls off the planet afterwards, which is a shame because she came out of Age of X really dedicated to doing interesting stuff and just sort of faded into the background. Marvel, please bring back Joanna Cargill because I love her and she's amazing and you need more characters like her, and we all need more characters like her, and I miss her, and she's awesome. For now, though, uh, we don't really see much of her. She's just big and sort of angry, and um, keeps talking to Tower about the Master, which makes me think of Manos the Hands of Fate, like Torgo's just gonna show up as well. The Master will not be pleased. Now, spoiler, the Master is actually gonna turn out to be Apocalypse, but God, how awesome would it be if it, if it had just been you know, the Manos the Hands of Fate character with the big red hand prints? Oh, that would be way better. In the meantime, X-Factor's doing their X-Factor thing. They're trying to train Rusty. He's getting very frustrated because Jean's being so harsh and basically says, hey, you know, I don't want any part of this and gestures over to Artie. I don't want to be anything like that. That's not human. I'm human. And he runs off being a total dick. Don't be mean to Artie. He's an adorable Moppet. He's an adorable lumpy-headed Moppet. That only makes him cuter. I know. On the soap opera front, Scott is still failing to get in touch with Madeline. Artie pulls that image out of his head. Everyone is miserable. Everything is awkward. Warren starts to hit on Jean when Candy calls. And yeah, everything is just terrible. Uh Uh-huh. Everyone is terrible. Angel is the terriblest. And so while Rusty's in the process of running away, X-Factor gets called out to a mission where they find out at a a boarding school this kid's pretending to be a mutant to scare the people who have been tormenting him because no one's really been treating him like a human being. And he saw these great commercials about how scary mutants are and everyone's been getting scared of them. And so he decides that he's going to like bug his friend's room 
bedrooms and tell them he's a telepath and he is terrified of X-Factor. He's so scared that they're going to take him away. And this teaches the team, but especially Gene, two things. One, maybe what they're doing is actually making things worse. Uh, spoiler, yes it is. And two... It's amazing the things you can do with electronics nowadays. Well, that too. But two, Gene's maybe been too harsh on Rusty for the same reasons. Now, meanwhile, Rusty has in fact run away. Yeah, and he doesn't get far before he is uh, confronted and then captured by Frenzy, and he can't do a damn thing against her. His, his fire doesn't even hurt her at all. Well, let's talk a little about Frenzy, uh, a little bit more, because she's rad. Anytime. All right, so what I really like about Frenzy, one of the things, is her outfit, because it's revealing, yes, but it's not sexualized. She just looks like a bodybuilder, which is totally appropriate for her character. Yeah, her costume actually reminds me, and very specifically, for me at least, evokes Barda's costume in the in the DCU. Like, it's it's a bikini, but it's, it's very athletic looking. And it actually illustrates what I think is a really important point of costume design, which is that costumes communicate ideas. So you can put a character in a very skimpy outfit and get a bunch of different effects. And on Frenzy, the way it's drawn and what it is and the way it fits her makes her look more physically powerful. It accentuates that. Yeah. So yeah, character designers, take note. It's not just about coverage. So she captures Rusty. X-Factor, in the meantime, has uh, gotten back from their little mission and are greeted outside by a disguised in too big for him clothing Artie who projects a picture of what's going on saying, hey, Rusty's in trouble. You got to help him. He is just really embracing the, the Moppet cliche here. <laughs> he really is. So they go and confront Frenzy and are like, hey, give us back our bud, dude. And she's like, no way. I'm going to fight you. And when she realizes that she's losing, says, no way. I'm going to knock down an entire building to cover my escape. Everyone hugs and makes up, uh, Rusty apologizes to Artie, Scott and Jean apologize to Rusty, and everyone lives happily ever after, by which I mean they totally don't because this is X-Factor. Right. So uh, we're actually, we're not done with the Alliance of Evil anytime soon because as the next issue opens, we see Frenzy and Tower and two other members that we haven't seen before, Time Shadow and Stinger, chasing a beardy dude, saying, hey, come back here, we need you. Didn't you used to have a Mage the Ascension character named Time Shadow? Oh yeah, he was a cultist of ecstasy. It was great. Wasn't everyone a cultist of ecstasy? They were like the Toreadors of Mage. Kind of. So yeah, we don't really know what's going on with that, other than, you know, some more references to the Master. So the dude that the Alliance of Evil was chasing does manage to get away, and he attempts to get in touch with his wife saying, hey, I need to get some drugs because that will stop these people from chasing me. And we, the readers, don't really know what's going on. She's like, hey, that's what broke up our marriage. No way and is crying, and then decides to call X-Factor Investigations because apparently mutants are involved with this. Now, meanwhile, X-Factor Investigations has been having their own sort of quiet character-building moments. They've been working out at the gym together and having some really Silver Age hijinks, and Vera has taken Hank and Bobby shopping for one of the most amazing outfits ever. We will be posting this in the As Mentioned. You should all cosplay it. Remember when we did that stealth plainclothes cosplay contest? Mm -hmm. Really quickly, I just want to say, if any of you had given us a picture of this costume, you would have won. Just flat out, <laughs> no matter what else was submitted. So anyway, they get called onto this case, and they're especially interested because the two of the mutants described by this woman are Frenzy and Tower. They're like, oh, them again? Okay. The ubiquitous Tower. So they find this guy, Mike Nolan, in the hotel that his ex-wife knew that he was in, and they find him in a drugged stupor. Beast manages to revive him, and he's like, oh, crap. Uh, well, I guess I'd better tell you what's going on. Why I am doing the drugs, which we will never name in this issue. I, was that a code thing, or is it just repeatedly just referred to them as drugs or dope we no do hear dope at one reason. point yeah and oh so what he tells us is that his power is to amplify the mutant powers of others but what he what he's found out is that when he's high because he's been a junkie in the past his powers don't work so that's what he's trying to do is dull his powers so the alliance of evil won't have a need for him and won't come after him unfortunately this guy is hella doomed which is a shame because it means we never get to see him and the leech in the same room and that would have been interesting 
X-Factor almost has him convinced that he needs to trust them, they can help him control his powers, when the Alliance of Evil attacks and starts this giant melee. And the bad guys have Susan, they have Nolan's ex-wife, so he attacks them, Frenzy escapes with Susan, Beast follows, and she just tears off a car door and whacks him with it. Um, Which I love. They escape, the Alliance of Evil gets Nolan and they run away with him. And they take him to a chateau where we first see the master and learn his name. This is where we find out the master is not the dude from Manos the Hands of Fate. He is a shadowy, silhouetted figure. There are other people who he is specifically not, because he was originally supposed to be Leland Owsley, the owl. This is a name that may be familiar to you if you have been watching the recent Daredevil series, because Owsley in his civilian identity appears in that. He was a hella goofy supervillain, and Louis Simonson, who was on the verge of taking over this series, looked at that reveal and was like, yeah, this is an insufficiently climactic antagonist. Come on, guys. The Owl. So she came up with a new name, that name being Apocalypse. Enough. The time is nearly at hand, and I will brook no interference. You shall soon provide all mutant kind with a source of unlimited might, a race of super mutants, and I shall lead them to war against the puny infection called Man. So swears Apocalypse. The drama of this moment is slightly undercut by the fact that he does not have his signature design yet, and so is just dressed in a black turtleneck and a gimp mask. But yeah, so that's the cliffhanger that this issue ends on, and that's the end of Bob Layton's run. Louise Simonson does in fact pick up in the middle of a storyline, but we opted to do that as a separate issue since the tone changes so drastically. So there you have it, Bob Layton and Jackson Guise's run on X-Factor in its entirety. And you have questions. Yes, indeed. N.M. Rosario asks on Tumblr, Have you ever read the Amazing Adventures Beast story arc from 1972 detailing how he mutated into his furry form? I would be kind of interested in your opinion on what color Beast's fur actually is. It started out as gray in Amazing Adventures 11 through 14, then changed to black in number 15. Of course, comic books used blue to show black highlights back then, so I've always believed that as years passed, writers simply forgot that Beast's fur was supposed to be black and started referring to it as blue by mistake. I suspect that you are in fact correct. The only mention of Beast's fur being black is in Amazing Adventures number 15. When it first turned black. Right, and the coloring was indeed actually colored blue described as black. As early as Amazing Adventures 17, it seems clear that colorists are assuming that it's blue, and the dialogue starts to reflect that pretty fast. I will say also that L. Collins and I discussed this and the semiotics of that particular change from gray to blue at kind of ridiculous length on an, an episode of Intuit, then I will drop a link to that in the as-mentioned post. Mm-hmm. All right, what else do we have? Well, Quincy Rhodes asks on our blog, Do you guys have favorite Toy Biz figures? Has this or any ex- other X-Men merchandising played a role in developing and furthering your fandom? So I'll take this one because the answer is definitely yes. Um, specifically, I think the first one was the Magneto figure from the old Mattel Secret War series. If you've listened to the show very much, you know I love Magneto, and I think that awesome action figure was a big part of why I just dug the weird helmet and the color scheme. As for the Toy Biz series, the original Archangel and Apocalypse were two of my favorites. I loved how weird they were, and so those toys were already in my head the first time I started reading X-Men comics on my own as opposed to having them read to me, and so I suspect part of why I love Archangel and I love Apocalypse so much is because those toys were like two of my favorite ones to play with. I suspect also that my soft spot for the boring acolyte Senyaka is due to his rad action figure that came out a couple years later. So I didn't really grow up with X-Men action figures, and I have been making up for lost time since, but my absolute holy grail x-men toy my very very favorite not only for look but also just for playing x-men with um is definitely the lego blackbird set that's entirely reasonable it is so cool it lives on my desk and i periodically run around with it making swooping noises and i am not ashamed of that (laughs) 
So normally this is the part of the podcast where we thank the folks who've made what we do possible. You know, in uh, Angry Narrator or Supervillain or Dracula Voices, that sort of thing. We're going to be doing something a little bit different because sometimes there's something that's a little bit too important to delegate. Um, so I think this one's just coming from us as, as Rachel and Miles. Yeah, so we moved to Portland in 2006 and we knew maybe a couple of people. But we, uh, one thing that we found pretty quickly was this really awesome radio show that was uh, on mainstream radio, but was hosted by a couple of people who seemed like they were our people. They were geeks in the midst of mainstream culture. Right, and they were really smart, and they were really interesting, and they were really, really funny and really engaged. And it made Portland feel like home really, really fast to just like have that on commutes. And um, after a little while, getting to know more and more people in the comics industry and the geek uh, scene in general... We got to know them, one especially, that being Bobby Roberts. Right, and Bobby Roberts and Court Webber, who was the other host of this, were kind of, at this point, the center of Portland geek culture. Anytime there was something really cool and really nerdy that was comics-focused or movie-focused in Portland, these dudes were there. And uh, when we started talking about maybe doing an X-Men podcast, Bobby was the first person we got in touch with just asking for some advice. You know, we've said before that this podcast wouldn't exist without Bobby, and it's obvious, you know, when we say that, one of the things we're talking about is the production, because if you've heard us talk live, you know how much more polished what you actually hear on the podcast is. But when we were first starting to put this together about a year ago, we were trying to figure out whether we could do it at all. We really, really didn't know. But what we knew was that we knew we had a friend who was behind one of the best podcasts we knew who was really nice. We emailed him, we asked for advice, and... He sent us a couple really long emails basically talking us through the process and offered to produce. And honestly, I don't know if we would have made the plunge without knowing that we had, you know, that expertise to turn to. And over the last year, as we've, you know, gradually gotten the hang of this, you know, Bobby, you have just like so consistently been there and you have been such an integral part of making this what it's grown into and is continuing to grow into. Like it literally I can't say whether the podcast would exist without you, but I know it wouldn't be what it is today. Yeah, but all good things must come to an end, and this is actually Bobby's last uh, episode producing the podcast. Man, so this is, I, I will say, the podcast is not going anywhere. We are going to be working with Kyle Yount, who you might know through the Kaiju cast, which is a lot like what we do, but for giant monsters. It's also awesome. But it is the end of an era, and Bobby, it has been such a privilege and such a joy to work with you. Thank you so much. We're going to keep on going forever, but yeah, this podcast, everything that happens in the future is going to be because of the past that we've done with you. So yeah. thanks. You know, of all the souls we've encountered in our travels, yours was the most human. Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and was produced by Bobby Roberts. He heads towards a podcasting sunset, Kangol Hat, casting a jaunty shadow behind him, a crooked thankful grin on his hobbity, bespectacled face as he hands off producer duties to Kyle Yount, creator of Kaiju Cast, the world's preeminent podcast about Godzilla and all his rubber-suited foes. New episodes of the show will still come out on Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, and the website rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all sorts of extra content, including episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men Evolution recaps, and much, much more. The podcast is totally listener-supported thanks to Rachel and Miles' Patreon subscribers. Everything they do is made possible by that generosity and support. If you would like to become a Patreon supporter, go to rachelandmiles.com and click the link at the top. Next week, Kyle takes over as producer just in time for Iceman to fight cosmic forces and Nightcrawler to get his pirate on as Rachel and Miles leave no miniseries unturned. Live long and prosper. Live long and prosper.